1: If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. ba da ba At participating McDonald's.
0: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey. <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Today's podcast guest is Camilla Townsend, who's Professor of History at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Camilla's book, Fifth Son, A New History of the Aztecs, is among the titles shortlisted for this year's Kundal History Prize, of which History Extra is a media partner. Our World History Editor, Matt Elton, caught up with Camilla to find out more about her new take on the Aztec people.
3: Do you think the people that we know today as the Aztecs would recognise the image that we have of them?
4: The people that I know that I have met in the sources would never recognize themselves in the image that we have. Uh, we watch movies like Apocalypto, and we think we learn something about Mesoamericans, but if they were to see such things or re- read such things, they would be stunned. Okay? They, they thought of themselves as humble, scrappy people who had sort of fought their way up from the top. They had, you know, been the last to arrive in the valley. Um, they did not think of themselves as cruel, you know, bloodthirsty, abusive. Users, they thought of themselves as good rulers, careful rulers, and just rulers, not as sort of impassioned, violent, overwhelming boars. Right? So I, I think uh, it, it would be we'd be hard put to persuade them that it's that it, we are talking about them when we talk about our view of the Aztecs today. I said there that the people
3: that we know as the Aztecs, because, of course, there's some discrepancies in how we should refer to the people we're going to be talking about. What terms should we be using and who do they describe?
4: Right. The people that we call the Aztecs never actually use that term. Um, It appears once in one illustration, um, but there's nothing that indicates that uh, they actually ever use that word in all the ordinary writings that I've read. Uh, They call themselves the Mexica, uh, spelled M-E-X- ICA, you know, hence our word for Mexico. Um, and they sometimes called themselves the Nahuas, meaning people who spoke Nahuatl, uh, the language uh, that was common in the area, and they shared that language with most of their neighbors. But they didn't use the word Aztecs. And when we use it, it's a bit confusing. It was invented by scholars later as a term to talk about those people, but it isn't always clear. Are we just talking about the tribe that conquered others, uh, the ones that lived on the island in the, in the lake in the center of the Great Valley? or are we talking about everybody who lived in central mexico at the time or even uh, even wider than that people up and down mesoamerica uh, so i try to avoid it although i'm i'm a fine one to talk because i did put it in my in the title of my recent book but that's because it's a word that everybody knows and everybody understands so uh, if if i were to talk right away about the nawas or the mexica no one would know what the heck i was saying right?
3: Um, Your book tells the story of hundreds of years of history through the lives of individuals Um, Why did you decide to take that approach and which sources did you use in order to do so?
4: Right. This book is different from other books about the Aztecs because I use the histories that they wrote in their own language for their own children and grandchildren in the 1500s. They had learned the Roman alphabet from the friars, the Spanish friars, and they used it mostly for what the Spanish friars wanted them to use it for, to study the Bible and to write the, the codices that we've all seen little pictures of in our textbooks. But they also took it home and said to their fathers and grandfathers, it was, mostly the men in their family, you know, tell us the histories that you used to tell. And then they would transcribe these, write these down. And not much has been done with them because they are hard to understand at first. You know, they weren't written for Spaniards, so they weren't written with Western concerns in mind. So when you first read just one, you think, what does that mean? (laughs) Once you've read dozens and dozens, though, um, you you begin to see what they're doing, the patterns, the way they're they're talking about history. Um, So so those were the sources that that I used. In doing that, I was able to piece together a version of their history that they would have been comfortable with, rather than the one that we're more used to, that the Spanish friars tell, but if I had left it just at that, it would have been somewhat alienating to outsiders, to the to the modern people that I'm now writing for. Because if we talk about you know the war between the Atzcapotzalco the, or a certain lineage and Atzcapotzalco and a certain lineage in Tenochtitlan modern Western people's eyes are going to glaze over. We don't know what this is. So I try to put it in terms of individual people and individual families within that situation to kind of give us something to hang on to as we make our way through uh, the Mexica version of their history. Okay. Some people would say it's dangerous uh, in the sense that we don't really know those individuals. But I try to be very cautious and only present what we think we do know. And then beyond that, offer the reader the context and show what they were probably thinking or probably doing. In some ways, it's what we do whenever we write history, even when we're writing about great white men in the United States or England. And who are the
3: key peoples and people in the earliest days of the story that you sketch out in your book?
4: It is difficult to come up with a panoply of of varied characters. The people that we know most about, that figure most prominently in the sources, are the royal family, the royal family of Tenochtitlan, the capital city. Uh, So several of the kings appear and some of their sisters and daughters. But there is one enslaved young woman whom we know quite a bit about. Her name is, or was, uh, Malinche in, in Spanish, Malinzin in Nahuatl. Uh, she had been uh, taken prisoner by the Mayas and enslaved, and then they gave her to Cortes when they when they lost a battle. Uh, Hernando Cortes. She then became the translator uh, because she spoke Maya and Nahuatl and rapidly learned Spanish. She's famous or became famous to the Spaniards, so they wrote quite a bit about her, and then later she married a Spaniard, so her children entered the Spanish world, and through them we also have some sources. So with this story, I am able to include uh, one true commoner, okay? Others who are commoners appear, uh, but she's the one that we know most about,
3: you mentioned the capital city there, which I think is quite famous to a lot of our listeners. Um, when did that first emerge and what would we have seen if we could walk down its streets somehow?
4: Tenochtitlan, by the time the Spaniards got there, was an extraordinary metropolis. Um, they describe it in wonder. Uh, drawings that people who lived there later presented, show it to have been a place of wonder. And of course, now we have computer-generated versions of the city based on those archaeological findings and those drawings. The whole thing, in fact, is completely buried under modern Mexico City, so I can't suggest that you go and see for yourself like I can for certain other uh, Mexican ruins. Okay. Um, but still, uh, we have we have the the buried temple precinct, and we have these drawings and these computer-generated images. It had taken about 100 years to build. That is, the, the the Mexica had only been working on building that city from the early 1400s. As a result, it was carefully planned. It had grown uh, to contain tens of thousands of people over the course of just 100 years. So they had carefully laid out grid streets, Um, and carefully cleared courtyards, et cetera, quite different from the ancient cities of Europe, which kind of developed in an ad hoc, sprawling way. Uh, So it actually really stunned uh, the Europeans who arrived for that reason. They weren't used to seeing ancient cities that had been carefully planned. In the very center downtown area, there were two massive bright-colored pyramids that were their greatest temples, and around them the neighborhood of the royal family and the elite. Beyond that, surrounding that, uh, there were many local neighborhoods uh, that were sort of a combination of of a political ward and a parish. They were both you know They both worshipped together, but also organized politically uh, together. They paid their taxes uh, according to these little neighborhood rewards, etc. They participated in cleaning the temple that way, etc. It was very beautiful because on the top of each roof, whether it was a, the roof of a nobleman's house or an ordinary person's house, uh, was a garden, partly for food, but partly also flowers. And then around the very edges of the city, which was on an island in the lake, uh, there were these chinampas, or hay. Hang- Hanging gardens, uh, mud piled into baskets uh, that was hanging in the lake where they could grow. You know, that makes for a very fertile garden. And there they grew um, more crops. So the Spaniards were stunned by the organization and by the beauty of it. Uh, there was a zoo uh, that Mostazuma kept and a library. Okay? Uh, the zoo was really designed to show off his power. They brought animals and plants from all parts of the empire uh, to to demonstrate that you know the, the the breadth of his rule, okay? um, but in the meantime, it also made for an entertaining walk. There were gorgeous aviaries. Uh, again, there they were actually farming the birds. They they took the feathers and made beautiful. Um, um, craftwork items out of them. But again, it made for a place where people could walk and enjoy the birds. So uh, it was something to see. uh, And many of the Spaniards who participated in in burning it down or or levelling it with cannon fuselage uh, uh, expressed regret later.
3: It's also very different from that popular image of this bloodthirsty, brutal place, isn't it?
4: Yeah, the Aztecs that I have, whose voices I read in these texts, really are not bloodthirsty, brutal people at all. They they did practice human sacrifice. So right away, you're going to say, "Well, then," uh, but it was in effect a political tactic. Most ancient peoples we now think practiced occasional human sacrifice around the world. Uh, the Native Americans certainly did. Uh, prisoners of war, young warriors, often faced that fate. Uh, women and children were usually adopted. Now, I will say the Aztecs in the latter part of their reign did uh, bring this to, shall we say, a high art. That is, they, they turned it from an occasional spiritual practice to um, a terror tactic. Uh, what, in one of their uh, historical writings, they actually say we would bring people in from the outskirts, people whose, whose kingdoms we wanted to, to have join our empire, and we would show them the human sacrifice ceremonies and then let them go, uh, telling them, tell your people, that's what's in store for you if you don't choose to join the empire? Um, I remember one writer said in this way, they were undone, you know meaning panicked okay um, so it became a truly brutal terror tactic, but I think um, as an American woman and you as a Brit, I think we are not unfamiliar with the practice of governments uh, showing a, a little uh, a little bit of terror to make sure that uh, people uh, do what we wish them to do. Uh, and that's what, what they were doing. In their writings, the they artists and singers express horror of this violence and deep regret. Um, there are several songs uh, that say, oh, oh, there should be more living. You know, living is what we are here for. Oh, uh, the, the tragedy that we have to enact death. Uh, and I have found no songs, no poems, uh, that celebrate the gore or the blood or, or war at all. And again, these songs were were written down um, as part of their own traditions, not to please the Spaniards at all.
3: You mentioned the Aztec Empire there. When did that start uh, emerging and who was it made up of? Which groups of people?
4: The Aztecs... Came down from the north, from what is today the American Southwest. They were uh, the last of a number of streams of people who came down uh, from the North. So you could argue uh, that the Aztec Empire had been building gradually, so to speak, as a phenomenon uh, for several hundred years. Uh, They these people coming from the North then conquered and or intermarried with uh, more peaceful agricultural people living in the central valley of Mexico. It's a bit like the story of of Genghis Khan coming down from the north into into China. Um, So in that regard, they're they're an old people, both the, the Central Valley people and the peoples coming from the north. For a long time then, this this tribe, if you'll let me use that word, uh, it's a bit of an anachronism, uh, th- this ethnic group called the Mexica, uh, they worked for others. They lived on other people's lands, hired themselves out as mercenaries, uh, gave, or worked as farmers. Then, uh, about 100 years before the Spaniards showed up, they uh, deemed that they had enough power to set up their own little permanent town and establish their own kingship or chieftainship. They had tried before, but it had never worked out. They didn't really have enough power. They, They managed it by intermarrying with... What I call the local boss state—that is, the the local kingdom that was at that time the most powerful one—and with with such a princess in their keeping, they were able to manage to set up their own little world. Um, and they they grew quickly at that point. I think it actually helped them that they were living on this lake. Um, it meant that they could have a market that people all around the, the valley could get to easily because anyone who could get to the lake shore could row over to the island and and trade. It also meant that they could go fishing or collect the eggs of ducks and all their waterfowl. They even ate blue-green algae. I, I'm told that people in who, frequent health food stores today do that too. Um, so they had all sorts of f- food supplies, which meant that they were free to make war at any time of year. They weren't tied to their crops, to their planting grounds like the other indigenous peoples were for most of the year. Um, so I think their their lake, their lake lakeland life actually helped them them to rise to power. In any event, they did a remarkably good job. Within 100 years, they were the rulers of the valley. Very impressive.
3: Was the period before the arrival of the Spanish marked by shifting political allegiances and loyalties?
4: Uh, Yes, that is, they certainly had their own History, and I mean changing history. I don't mean a sort of timeless past in which they had always, you know, behaved in a certain way. Um, It's it's very clear that they, um, as they conquered more territory, they then became more defensive of that position, um, and. Became more brutally coercive over other neighbors. They were able to do this because they were so effective at solidifying um, power in the central valley by bringing other local Alte Pets or tribes, communities to their central governing table. Um, the The other thing that they were particularly good at, uh, as they kind of strengthened their, you know, solidified their power there in that latter period, uh, was. Keeping the various lineages uh, that were part of this extensive royal family at peace, which is not always easy, Uh, we tend to forget that polygamy... As pleasurable as it may be for the the leading man, right, uh, does bring certain problems with it. Uh, namely, uh, too many heirs, kind of the the opposite of the problems that that sometimes plagued uh, the British royal family in the in the deep past. Okay, when you only had one wife, so with with too many wives, so to speak, and too many heirs, um, sometimes uh, Mesoamerican peoples, like other ancient peoples, uh, were found themselves frequently at war as different bands of brothers fought others. The Mexicas seem to have been, or their royal family, particularly adept at at calming those waters. They would uh, agree ahead of time, a certain prince, they would agree that I shall rule now, but my son will not. Instead, his daughter, my granddaughter, will marry your son, uh, who will rule. But I will be satisfied because this means that my great-grandson you know, will, will be the ruler. So they would braid the, the families back and forth that way by arranging these cousin marriages. Um, and in, in so doing, uh, they managed to avoid uh, fighting amongst themselves, which meant that they had dozens of powerful princes and generals working together most of the time. Still to come on the History Extra Podcast. It's a politicized, culturalist movement, um, and certainly among the many things uh, that such, such activists, such people are doing is, is reading and rereading their own history in their own languages. We
2: don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down.
1: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello.
0: This call is being translated.
1: Abuela, listen to what my phone can do.
0: Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
2: Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva.
0: Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend.
1: Huh? Sabes lo que dije.
0: You know
1: what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Um, in
3: 1518 and 1519, the Spanish invaded, um, which is a story we usually hear about from the Spanish point of view. What happened, and what can we learn from looking at it from the other perspective?
4: The conquest by the Spaniards, as you say, has been uh, subject to commentary uh, on the part of so many people for so many years, okay, that in some ways it's a very well-known story. Um, But I do find that new perspectives can be gleaned, uh, listening to the indigenous people very carefully. Now, you know, the great Miguel Leon Portilla of Mexico published a a book giving giving voice to um, much of the agony that they experienced um, many decades ago. He he first published in in the 50s. Um, But now we are able to move past these sort of laments uh, that were offered to the Spaniards and written down um, and, and, and move instead to very detailed and specific accounts uh, that were written by people who were involved. Um, and we learn, I think, a couple of things. One, that although they didn't know why it was the case, they seem to have been very much aware that Spanish technology and, and capacity to win battles exceeded theirs from very early on. Uh, in, in fact, we now know uh, that that sort of thing is a function of the number of centuries or millennia that your people have been sedentary. The longer you've been sedentary farmers, uh, the vaster your panoply of technological inventions and the greater your population, etc., etc., they were, in effect, technologically speaking, roughly where the ancient Mesopotamians were. Uh, they had been farming for a similar number of years um, and had some similar technology, so, very impressive. But they couldn't defeat Renaissance Europe. That wasn't in the cards. They could win battles, but not the war. What's impressive to me when I read their writings carefully is that they seem to have seen that quite quickly and, and understood that that was the central, the nut they needed to crack, the problem they needed to resolve. Of course, they couldn't. They didn't have access to the archaeological records or the radiocarbon dating techniques. We didn't have it ourselves until the 1990s to figure that out. Um, but they knew it, and they were very observant, uh, and they did their absolute, best uh, to fight in uh, in as sophisticated a way as possible. For example, when the Spaniards uh, uh, lost one of their cannons, they tried to learn how to use it. They quickly figured out they didn't have a way to produce enough ammo, so they sank it in the lake. So at least it's one cannon off the off the playing board. Okay, um, And likewise, in other situations, we, we see them uh, responding as well as they can, uh, doing the best that they can. It's, again, very impressive. The other thing that we learn from these indigenous sources, is that many people understandably were panicked and turned on each other. That happens in all such situations. When you look around world history, people who are, who are trapped and panicked do turn on those closest to them. So the great Cuauhtémoc, the leader who took over after Montezuma, uh, famous in Mexico and, and some other people too, as the, as the great hero who, who never gave up, he turns out to have been quite quite a bad man <laughs> in the sense that, although yes, he fought to the last man, so to, so to speak, against the Spaniards, um, he... He also uh, used this as an this terrible moment as an opportunity to get rid of his political rivals uh, quite brutally. Um, Moctezuma's sons were almost all killed by him or at his orders because he Cuauhtemoc figured once we, once they did finally eject the Spaniards as he hoped they would do uh, that he wanted to make sure he remained in power and that no other heir from some other wife um, would would still be standing. So we get a much more human and complete picture of what was going on. It, it, it reminds me sometimes of Game of Thrones <laughs> in the same way, obviously, that European history does. I don't mean to vilify them, but uh, they, they were real people going through real events and making real decisions um, during all of these, these happenings.
3: That's an interesting point about not vilifying them, because something that comes through your book is that in the past, there's been a tendency to be quite moralistic and judgmental about the Aztecs in a way that's not that helpful, historically speaking.
4: Yes, I think we have often, we Westerners, what I mean, have often used the Aztecs sort of as a morality tale, an example of what human beings can devolve to, or you know, the, the worst of us is, is exemplified by, by, by being Aztec. Um, it's still presented that way in history textbooks, at least in the United States. When I open the typical high school textbook, I, I am told every indigenous person in Mexico quickly flocked to join the Spaniards because they all hated and loathed these inherently deeply evil people who practiced human sacrifice. But, in fact, they were politically astute people, uh, one group among many who practiced human sacrifice in times of war. Um, they did rise to power and, and then had more to protect and you know more to lose and and so one could argue behaved a little worse the way people with great power often do. Um, but there is nothing particularly bloody or awful about them. I, I think that that story was really born in the years after the conquest that it was given birth to by the Spaniards themselves. That is, the indigenous people did not all flock to the Spaniards. Many did, but not all. It was quite the civil war. Um, It was the Spaniards who began to say later, oh, these people, they were just so relieved to be freed from their enemies uh, by us Christians. And that was a very appealing idea that they loved us, they wanted to be Christians we did them a great favor. It was distracting from the fact that they had that the Spaniards had leveled this gorgeous city uh, that poverty and disease were spreading in ways that had never been part of the Mesoamerican world before. Uh, so they spoke about them as, these, as brutal people, um, it, it, not in their first letters home. In the first letters home, they said, Wow, you should see these cities. Uh, but within about 30 years, it started. And of course, that life then, um, that story rather, took on a life of its own uh, because it, it, it was deeply satisfying in, in Europe, I think, to, to think of these people as savages and not to therefore have to regret anything that one had done. Mm-hmm.
3: You write in your book that this is a story about the trauma of conquest, but also about survival and continuity. Um, In what way should we see this particular episode in those terms?
4: Yes, right. Many people are surprised to learn that in my book, the conquest is just the middle chapter. It's not the end of the story at all. Uh, Generally, books on the Aztecs sort of end with the conquest, or in in some cases, uh, there's a little chapter on the conquest in the beginning, and then it's really about the colonial period. Uh, But it was very important to me to have this just be a a chapter in the middle. Now, it is pivotal. I'm not saying that it's not important. Of course, it was a crucially important moment. Uh, But their lives did go on. In fact, that is what they talk about in their writings, in in a way, both the the devastation that they experienced, but also the realization that they needed to make breakfast the next morning. Uh, They needed to choose the next chief in each of the surrounding towns, etc etc., which in fact is very much mirrors the experience that we are offered by other peoples who experience war and and disaster. Uh, One of the painful and often unspoken aspects of it is that that period of high drama passes and then you are left standing in the middle of the wreckage and needing to rebuild, which is what they did. They lost in a material sense. They then became tribute payers, taxpayers to the Spaniards, to the Europeans. But they didn't lose their culture. That aspect of their lives, their language still continues. Okay, Some aspects of their religion have been incorporated into Catholicism in Mexico. Um, almost all the place names, most of the food is still theirs, is still indigenous. So uh, in a cultural sense, uh, their lives just went right on ticking.
3: How how different were their lives, if that's not too broad a question, and were there crises that are kind of kept happening during this later period?
4: Right. Well, during the colonial period, there is or there was, I should say, great variability in the experience of the indigenous people. Certainly the Mexica, the Aztecs on their island city, uh, experienced great change. They had ruled the world and suddenly they did not. Even they, though, experienced some continuity. They did continue to govern Mexico City for themselves and, in fact, did not have to pay any taxes or tribute to the Spaniards for another whole generation. It was the 1560s before the Spaniards felt that they could extract that. Uh, Before then, they really needed the Aztecs to to help them govern, in effect. People around the, the, the Central Valley and then outside of the Central Valley some of them, well, I should say, especially the people outside the Central Valley. Some of them never saw a Spaniard for another generation or two, um, and yet the people that they paid their taxes to changed. Okay? Uh, so, in some ways, uh, very little changed at first for those surrounding non-Mexica peoples, just who they paid their taxes to. But even for them, the moment of reckoning always came. You know, in every part of Mexico, Spanish presence did grow. Um, and as it grew, it became more and more impossible to, for the local people to argue with the Spaniards. At first, they could say, no, we can't give you 20 turkeys every month as tribute or as tax. Um, but within about 20 years, they simply had to do what the Spaniards said. And, and poverty did begin to grow amongst the indigenous peoples then um, in, in ways that it, would, it had never done under the Aztecs, because the Aztecs were local people themselves and understood what the taxpaying limits of the, of the people were. So over time, um, indigenous people everywhere, Mexica and non-Mexica, did lose power. But there was a certain stasis that was reached, a a certain understanding eventually between the Spaniards and the Indians. And, you know, note that the colonial era there lasted for 300 years, longer than British rule in in North America lasted, partly because they did come up with a sort of uh, their version of a Pax Romana kind of. uh, And then the independence wars exploded all that. And ironically, many would say that it was in the 1800s, in the the modern post-independence period, that things got really bad for the Indians. Because at that point, no Spanish crown was there to say, well, these are my children, too. You know, big business just moved in and did what they wanted to do.
3: Are there characters or stories from this post-conquest period that particularly stand out for you?
4: Well, uh, yes, yes. Many would probably cite some of the grandchildren of Moctezuma, because the royal family did continue and did, in fact, participate in governing the city uh, for uh, for a couple of generations. But the guy I liked best was not from the royal family. His name was Chimalpahin. Uh, literally, it means he ran with a shield. It's a traditional uh, name that came from his great, I think, great-great-grandfather. He was a, a, a guy from Chalco, a, a town on the outskirts of the valley, uh, who was apparently particularly good in school because remember the friars were educating indigenous boys and he went to Mexico City and ended up working for his whole life for a particular church um, as the sort of foreman of the church. He, he did physical plant, he took care of parish records, et cetera. But in his spare time, he wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote every single uh, elder who he could convince to tell him the old stories, every document, every you know, everything that he could find uh, became sort of fodder for his mill and he um, produced uh, hundreds of pages of these histories and you get a bit of a sense of him as a man. Not much. He had a kind of dry sense of humor. He wasn't very emotional, but in little indirect ways he tells us who he was. He becomes a real person. And he watched. Um, He watched as the waves of disease came through and and, and lowered indigenous population. He watched as Africans were brought in as slaves and then an Afro-Mexican population was established there in the city, many of whom he was friends with. Um, He watched as rebellion occurred and were put down, uh, as the valley, the lake was drained to become the dry Mexico City we know today. And he describes all of this from a very intimate point of view. Um, one of his ancestors had actually been a, another sort of cultural producer, and artist of sorts, a singer um, who had given some lip to one of the Mexica emperors uh, or Mexica high kings. Um, and he was very proud of that ancestor too. So he clearly saw himself as, a, as part of a long line of cultural critics, if you well. Um, and, and I like that that family tradition continued. And there was a concerted
3: effort into the 17th century to, to write down this history and to record it for future generations, wasn't there?
4: Absolutely. This man Pahin, that I just mentioned was definitely a part of that, um, as was uh, one of the grandsons of Motuzuma. You know, by the end of the 1500s, beginning of the 1600s, it seems clear that they were realizing that they as a people were in danger of forgetting all the more complex elements of their past culture—the the, the poetry, um, aspects of the religion, the histories, the way history was written, etc.—and um, it was indeed true that is, people who had been children at the time of the conquest were dying. It's it's a bit like today, as we talk about the you know the last of the of the people who remember uh, the the World War Two uh, passing away. Um, Likewise, they they began to say to each other, we, we must do something, and there was a great flurry of activity and of, of history writing based on these elders' words. Um, very poignant, uh, and they were quite right as it turns out. No one forgot about the existence of the Aztecs, but the more complex aspects of their culture uh, did get put in a drawer for a while. And Thanks to these indigenous people, we can resuscitate some of that now. If they had not done what they did, we wouldn't be able to. They, they did save their people's culture.
3: Has the cultural legacy of this trauma manifested itself in the 20th and 21st centuries?
4: I would say that it has. Um, you probably know that um, Mexico's great and really earth-shattering revolution of the early 20th century was in part an indigenous movement, not entirely by any means, um, many Great books have been written about the revolution, and there are many aspects to it. Um, but one of the reasons that it, it spread among the populace uh, was a, 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 due to a sense of indigenous identity and and resentment, you know, uh, the, the sense of political disempowerment. Uh, one of the greatest leaders, Emiliano Zapata, is actually thought to have spoken Nahuatl. We're almost sure that he did. Um, and then since then, in, the more, in more modern, more recent times, a very explicit indigenous um, uh, identity um, movement, I think I can fairly call it, has emerged. There are now indigenous people all over Mexico, not just Nahuas, but Mayas and other groups, uh, purposely writing in their own language, performing, um, offering cultural performances in their own languages, uh, going on speaking tours. Uh, I've been to conferences, academic conferences. Now, this is rare, but I've been to academic conferences where uh, scholars of indigenous descent have presented in their own indigenous Indigenous language. Uh, there is now, for instance, a, a Nahuatl, Nahuatl dictionary uh, on grounds that it's wrong to continue to assume that every indigenous language exists to be translated into one of our languages. Uh, we would never assume that it was silly to have an English-English dictionary. Likewise, they have one. So this is very, very, it's a politicized, culturalist movement. Um, and certainly among the many things uh, that such, such activists, such people are doing is, is reading, rereading their own history in their own languages.
3: Are there uh, words or the story of an Indigenous person from the period you cover in your book that you'd like to leave us with that help us see their lives in a new light?
4: Chimal Pahin said over and over again in different ways that he did not want all that his people had done to be lost for all time. Over and over again, he said, if we commit all of these stories to writing, they will be there to be read for as long as there are people, for as long as there are descendants, and never, never for time immemorial shall they be gone forever. He wanted people to know that they had existed. He wanted people to know that they were real, with feelings Pains, traumas, hopes of their own. He wanted people to know that they had complex thought, beautiful poetry, moving artwork, understandings of history that were different from the European ways he had come to know so well in addition. He wanted everyone to know But certainly, and perhaps most especially, he wanted his people's descendants to know that, so that they would never, ever look down in shame or feel permanently powerless, but know that they were the equal of all the world's peoples and had their own highly legible past. That was Camilla Townsend.
0: Fifth Sun, A New History of the Aztecs, is out now, published by Oxford University Press. It's one of the books shortlisted for this year's Kundal History Prize. The finalists of the prize will be announced at 6pm today, the 20th of October. So head over to kundalprize.com to find out more. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Stella Dadsey about enslaved women in the West Indies.